All right, well, good morning, everybody. Before we start this morning, I just want to be very clear with you that I have drawn inspiration from a sermon preached by one of our pastors at our sister church up in Seoul. And I did the same with last week's sermon. Uh, and I need to give credit to Pastor James and Pastor Levi, who were gracious enough to give me permission to borrow from their hard work. I'm not just reading their sermons to you. I've put in my work as well. But we have agreed to share our work with, with each other. And so I just want to be upfront about that and give credit where credit is due. Uh, we did this one another series up at Freedom Village last summer. And so that's where the idea to even do these sermons came from. And so over the past several weeks, uh, we've been looking at commands given to the New Testament church. Uh, um, we've looked at what it means to love one another. We've looked at what it means to serve one another. And last week, we looked at what it meant to forgive one another. And when it comes to how to practically live out these commands, these three commands in particular specifically point to Jesus. Remember, we are to love as Christ loves us. We are to serve one another. But specifically, Paul says, through love, serve one another. And if we are to love one another in the way that Christ has loved us, then we are to serve one another in the same way that he has loved us. And, and again, we saw Jesus demonstrate this when he washed his disciples' feet and commanded them to serve one another in this way. And then last week we saw the command to forgive one another, which also has a caveat, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It says, and so again, specifically, these three commands are, in these three commands, we are being called to look to Jesus as our example of how to actually do these, how to live out these commands. This morning, we'll be looking at the command to encourage one another. I've often said that, that this life is not easy and we need each other. We, we need each other to be able to finish well. And we especially need each other when times are tough. There are so many people who have left the faith, left the church, because they did not have someone to come alongside of them um, to encourage them. So we, we can't make it on our own. And that's, that's what the world actually tries to sell us, um, that success is more valuable if you do it on your own, if you're independent. And if you pick yourself up, out of your lowest point, or out of hard times, or out of poverty even, if you do that for yourself, then the world praises you as being strong, as being independent, as being maybe even someone to look up to. And this insidious lie tells us that we are weak if we have to rely on others. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that's not what the Bible teaches us. Our passage this morning is Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, if, you, if you'd like to turn there with me this morning, um, Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. And as you're turning there, a little bit about this book. Scholars don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's a lot of speculation. Some think that it may have been Paul, but no one knows for sure. What we do know, though, is the purpose of the book and the context in which it was written. The book of Hebrews was written in a time when persecution against Christians was a reality. 
And, and not only from the empire of Rome, but also from Jewish leaders and from proselytizers. That's just a fancy way of saying Jewish evangelists. So persecution came through these people as well who thought that they were defending their faith from heresy. And they would actually travel around doing this. Remember, Paul, before his conversion, when he was called Saul, was one of these Jewish leaders who was responsible for persecuting Christians. The concern was that these followers of Jesus were heretics. In the eyes of these Jewish leaders, Jewish Christians had abandoned their faith. They had abandoned the Jewish sacrificial system. In reality, they hadn't abandoned their faith. Jesus was, was also Jewish, of course. He was, he was sent by the Father to, to Israel, to earth. He had been born in Israel to a Jewish family. He had been raised a good, a good Jew. But God the Father had sent him to teach his people a new and better way. So yes, Jews, sorry, and he had become a better sacrifice. So yes, Jews had abandoned the Jewish sacrificial system, but they hadn't abandoned God. They had followed him to a new way. And the book of Hebrews does an incredible job of comparing the Jewish sacrificial system with the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it goes into the, into the theological implications of Christ's death, that his death was once and for all time, and that there is no longer any need to sacrifice animals for sin. Hebrews explains to us that it is impossible, let me turn this on, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrificial system was meant to point to Christ and what he would accomplish. And so we can see by the contents of this book of Hebrews, but also by the name of it, because some manuscripts actually say to the Hebrews. So we know that this book was addressed specifically to Jewish Christians. At the time that Hebrews was written, in fact, the entire second half of the first century, Christians were being persecuted more and more. The author of Hebrews was writing to believers who had suffered and who had continued to face the threat of death. And, and we see that the author is concerned. He wants to encourage the church to persevere because, temptation, because the temptation for anyone faced with persecution is to give up, right? To avoid suffering or, or death by de denouncing their faith. Can you imagine how tempting it would be to compromise what you believe to protect yourself or your spouse or your children or your friends from harm? But the author of Hebrews' plea is to persevere despite this, to be steadfast and to look to Jesus for strength. So this is our passage this morning. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more 
as you see the day drawing near. So first of all, what is the confession of our hope? Well, <clears throat> let's, we need to look at context. Let's look at the beginning of this section of Hebrews 10, which starts in verse 19. Let me read it for you. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's just been talking about what Jesus' sacrifice means, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews has just spent nine chapters explaining who Jesus is. In chapter one, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the great high priest sent to rescue us from sin and to redeem us through his blood. And here in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, explain to us that, that Jesus has done what the Jewish high priests were only imitating. The high priests offered sin offerings on, on behalf of the Jewish people. Animals were sacrificed and their blood was sprinkled on the altar of the temple as a symbol of the cleansing of their sin. And this was a symbol of the cleansing of what Jesus' blood would actually do. Jesus has cleansed our hearts from sin and Jesus' cleansing is the true cleansing. It's not a symbol. You see, the Jewish high priests were only demonstrating what Jesus was about to do with the shedding of his blood. And not only that, he opened a way for us to come before the Father in prayer. We have confidence to enter the holy places, it says in verse 19. We can come before the God of the universe because of what Jesus has done. And so this is what our main passage is talking about when the author of Hebrews says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our hope is a person. It's Jesus. God came to us. Jesus came to us as a baby and lived on this earth and died on the cross to restore the relationship and the intimacy that we originally had with God in paradise, in the garden. We as believers have what Adam and Eve had before they sinned. Jesus has restored us. This is what we put our hope in. And not only what Christ has done, we put our hope in Christ himself and in what he will complete when he returns. And so in saying, let us hold, fa let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, in saying this, the author of Hebrews is again trying to encourage the, and urge his listeners to, to press on, to persevere, because this is what carries us through the highs and the lows of life, especially the lows. This hope that we have received in Jesus is our strength and our, our morning star. He is our living water. He is our compass and our guide. And, and we have access to the God of the universe. Not only access, we have a relationship with this God. Again, because of what Jesus has done. 
and more is coming. We will be united with him face to face. And the author finishes verse 23 with, he who promised is faithful. God can be trusted to keep his promise. If we fall down, he will help us back up and he will continue to restore us, continue to work in our hearts and help us to reach the end, reach the goal. This is our hope. And we can continue to lean on this truth, this reality. And so, again, the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage the church at, at this time when they are under heavy persecution. This is the hope that they can lean on. God is faithful and he can be trusted. He is our hope. But it doesn't stop there. He says in verse 24 and 25, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. How do we do that? How do we stir up one another to love and good works if we're not meeting together, right? We're, we're supposed to gather together. The church is supposed to gather. Remember, the author of Hebrews is saying this at a time when the church is being persecuted. And so gathering together as the church was dangerous. Christians were being arrested, falsely accused, tortured, and sometimes killed. As Christianity spread and people became more and more aware of the movement, of the movement there was pushback. We can read in Acts that Jewish leaders and these evangelists, these proselytizers, were trying to stir up whole towns and communities to rally against this new faith. Leaders in the church like Paul, Peter, and others were imprisoned and told to stop talking about Jesus. Not only this, the early church was being falsely accused of doing immoral things during their gatherings. And I, I won't get into all of that, but these rumors, these false rumors circulated throughout the Roman Empire. So this is the atmosphere in the days of the early church. Some cities and areas had worse persecution than others. Um, so, so in those areas, those Christians would have to meet in secret. Um, otherwise, they would be dragged off to prison or worse. So we can kind of understand the hesitancy here of some believers to stop gathering with other believers. They, this wouldn't have been the only reason, though. Some were actually abandoning the faith and going back to Judaism. And in some cases, these Jewish evangelists were successful. That's a big part of why the author of Hebrews writes his book and why, why the author spends so much time talking about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and, and how the new way of life that he taught is a better way than the way that had come before. Again, there's nine chapters before our passage today talking about how Jesus is better than Moses, how he's better than Melchizedek, the, the king and the high priest who Abraham offered his tithe to, and how the new covenant, which he has ushered in with his sacrifice, <clears throat> his blood, is better than the old covenant that the Jewish people were under. In fact, it's not only better, this new covenant has superseded the old covenant. 
The old covenant is gone. It's, it's an old wineskin that can't be used anymore. The new wine, the new covenant, needs a new wineskin. Jesus used that illustration to communicate this new reality. And so there are people in the church leaving. They're going back to the old wineskins, back to Judaism. Because, and there are, there are Christians who have stopped coming to the gathering because they're afraid of being persecuted. So this is, this is the reality of, and the context which the writer is writing. And the author of Hebrews, he continues to, to urge these believers to, to persevere. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us con- consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. When we're talking about Christian gatherings in the early church, we're not just talking about a modern worship service, three songs and a sermon. <laughs> um, there was more going on than that, and, and they did sing together. They did read Scripture. They did have teachers going through the Scripture. But the early church often met together throughout the week. Sometimes they even lived together. And they would meet in, in the early morning, and, and they would meet for dinner in the evenings. And the purpose was intentionally gathering together with other believers to encourage them in the truth of the gospel of God's word, to encourage each other with, with stories of how God had been working in their lives and how God had been faithful. And yes, singing and praying together, this is, and, and, and sharing with each other. This is, this, is the, this is what the author of Hebrews is urging the church to continue to do. And why? Because we need each other to run the race well and to finish well. Do you remember um, when we were not able to meet in person? This is only a few years ago. It was different, wasn't it? Watching an online service or even doing a service through Zoom, uh, which is what we had to do here for quite a while, was not the same. There was something missing. At that time, did you miss gathering with other Christians? There's something about the people of God gathering together that is healing, that is encouraging, that is life-giving. And the gathering of God's people is actually a means of God's grace and provision. And when it's taken away, like it was during COVID, we feel that. We feel something is missing. I have to admit to you that I went through a time of discouragement and depression during COVID. And I think a large part of that is the fact that we weren't able to meet together. It wasn't the same. Because what do we lose when we, when we don't gather together? We lose opportunities to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to receive counsel and advice from other believers, to hear stories of how others, people we know, overcame something or, or were able to help someone through something. We see faith lived out in the church. And we also see people struggle. And we, we sometimes see people, unfortunately, fall away. Because, um, and, and, and as sad as that is, 
that can help us grow as well. Um, because we see what not to do. Of course, we continue to pray for those people. We don't write those people off. We continue to lift them up in prayer. But the Bible is not just success stories, right? It's full of, it's full of stories of grievous sin, of people who have failed, of people walking away from God, and, and we're supposed to learn from that too. We learn from the good and the bad. That's why it's not just success stories in the Bible. It's real life. But that's why we gather. We gather to grow together. We, we learn from each other and we help each other. COVID was a time when a lot of people questioned why they even attended the service or they even came to gather with other believers. Um, a lot of people have not come back, sadly. And, and in the Korean church, this is actually a really serious issue. Some people saw this as their chance to not come back. And this happened in our own countries as well. Why? Why did this happen? Frankly, I think both parties can be at fault, the church and the person who's left. And I'm not talking about the church as the institution. I'm talking about the church as the body of Christ, us, the, the people. In the Bible, there are different metaphors that Scripture uses to describe the church. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul shows how the church is like a body, and each part works together to glorify God. Jesus calls his flock in Luke 2, Jesus calls us his flock in Luke 12. And in John 10, we see that he is our shepherd. And then in Mark 3, Jesus says that we are like a family. And so when the church isn't acting like a family, when it's not gathered together like a flock, when it's not acting like a body where everyone is contributing, then it's not functioning the way that it should. And maybe those people that left never experienced the church the way, functioning the way that it should. That's the biggest danger, I think, of large churches because it's so easy to get lost in a large church. So how do we help each other not get lost? I know we're not in a big church, um, but it's still a possibility. How do we stir up one another to love and good works, as the author of Hebrews encourages us, the church, to do? Well, first, he says that we are to gather together, not neglecting to meet together, he says. So we, we gather together intentionally. Why? Well, first, because we're called to, but also because, like I mentioned before, the gathering is a means of God's grace and provision. And that grace and provision can be received through each other. It can come directly from God as well, but one of the major means of God's grace and provision is through his church. Secondly, how do we stir up one another to love and good works? We consider one another. Verse 24 of our text says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is what we aim for when we gather with other believers. Notice what it's not saying. It's not saying consider how to love each other and do good deeds. 
It's not saying that. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. We should be doing that, and, and Scripture encourages that in other parts of Scripture. But here it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the, and the NLT says on the bottom there, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. We're to help each other move forward, to grow, to mature in Christ. But how do we do that? How do we do that without coming across as meddling in other people's lives or as being pushy or as being overbearing? Well, I think it starts with the word consider. Ask yourself, is someone I know in doubt or discouraged or depressed or struggling with temptation? God doesn't just work in our lives for our own individual benefit. He wants us to be considering other people and to be thinking about how we can help other people, um, not for our own benefit and what we want, but for his glory, for God's glory. When we, when we gather together, it's not just for our own indiv- individual ble- benefit that we take home with us and we keep for ourselves. We are blessed to be a blessing. You probably heard that before. Um, when God calls Abraham from seemingly out of nowhere, he's a pagan, he's living in a pagan nation, he's worshiping pagan gods, but God calls him out of that to himself, and he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 9, Verse 6, it says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then a couple verses down in verse 10, it says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, And increase the harvest of your righteous. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. In the same way that God is generous to us, which Paul says is is in every way, we are to be generous to others, whether that be our time, our energy, our talents, our money even. We are to consider how we can help each other how we can stir up one another to love and good works, which Paul says will produce thanksgiving to God. When we are considering others, when we are considering their benefit over ours, God is glorified. When we are generous people, God is glorified. We are blessed to be a blessing. Finally, how do we stir up one another to love and good deeds? We encourage one another. This is how the author concludes his charge. He says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the Greek word here for encourage is parakaleo. It's used in the New Testament not only to describe giving comfort to someone, but it's also used when talking about 
urging, strengthening, and appealing to someone or something. It's used in passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts parakaleo us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort parakaleo those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Again, blessed to be a blessing. Last verse, Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge parakaleo you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as believers, we are called to encourage one another. Biblical encouragement is the act of building confidence and hope in one another by reminding each other of God's character and his work in our lives. And it's not just cheering each other on or saying nice things, although that's part of it. It's more than that. Its purpose is deeper than boosting self-esteem. It's pointing to Christ. Let, Let me say that again. Biblical encouragement is the act of giving confidence and hope through reminding one another of God's character and his work in our lives. We help point each other to God. And we're not just giving, we're not just on the encouragement giving end, we also receive help from others in the church. In times of discouragement, we have, we have the tendency to retreat and to isolate ourselves, don't we? There are times when we need to be one-on-one with the Lord, but more often than not, in those times of discouragement, we should prioritize the gathering. Um, the body of believers, because the body of believers is the place of encouragement. Maybe some of you have been discouraged recently. Maybe even now you're feeling down or you're feeling alone for whatever reason. Be reminded that you are not alone. Job lost everything, and he said, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil, and yet God eventually restored him. Elijah was deeply troubled, and he said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm not, I'm not better than my ancestors. And yet God used him mightily. Moses was discouraged over the sin of his people, and yet God fulfilled his promise to his people. Jonah was angry and despaired over God's mercy for the people of Nineveh, and yet God still showed mercy to Jonah. The great prophet Jeremiah experienced loneliness, feelings of defeat, and insecurity, and yet God gave him strength to display great faith. David despaired greatly and wrote about it in the Psalms. You can see his heart laid bare. He's very honest, and yet God calls him a man after my own heart. And then Paul, the writer of much of the New Testament, said, We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we even despised life itself. Yet Paul is recorded as rejoicing in Christ, even in persecution. Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The truth is, for the discouraged, there is encouragement in Christ. And we encourage one another by pointing each other to him. Our main passage this morning was in Hebrews 10. In the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, the author goes through the heroes of the faith. He lists them off. And he explains how they endured and they persevered. And how it was faith that brought them through. And chapter 11 starts off with this. In verse 1, it says, it it defines faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then in the next chapter, chapter 12, after going through all these heroes of the faith, it starts in verse 1 by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's just talked about these great heroes of the faith, who clung to their faith and finished well. He says, therefore, because of this great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These heroes of the faith in chapter 11 are an example to us, an encouragement to us. But the only reason they finished well is because they looked to God for strength and for endurance to persevere, just as we do and we are encouraged to do, right? Amen? Amen. Let's let's pray together. Jesus, as we just read, you are the founder and the perfecter of our faith, meaning you ushered in this new way, and you called us to a kingdom greater than any kingdom on this earth. Thank you that we have so many examples of people of the faith who didn't do it on their own, but looked to you, our living water, our bread of life, our hope. Help us to encourage each other to look to you. We thank you that you are our great shepherd, and we pray this all in your name. Amen.